Well, again, good morning. Uh, great to be with you. Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Uh, we're, we're digging into our next section uh, in this book uh, together this morning. This is week four uh, of our study in this book. And, and just uh, as a really quick recap, if you aren't familiar with this letter, uh, Philippians, we know Philippians is a short letter that was written by a man named Paul who was radically transformed by the gospel. We know that Paul went from being a a killer uh, of Christians to eventually dying for being a Christian. And and we know that uh, within the context of this letter, that, that here, Paul is in prison in Rome. It's around 62 um, AD, and and he's writing to the church in Philippi, uh, which is located in modern-day Greece, okay, if you want to know where that is on a map. Um, If you weren't able to to listen, um, I encourage you to go back uh, and and listen to the last couple of weeks to to learn um, how this church was planted and to to work through Paul's greeting uh, to this church. Uh, but, but basically, what we see here is that Paul writes this letter to encourage the church um, and, in turn, to, to encourage us to find their life, to find their hope, to find their joy uh, in Jesus. Well, now today, we come to a very significant portion of this letter. Uh, and I believe that what we're going to study today Uh, really ties this entire book uh, together. Because what we're essentially going to see Paul do here is, uh, we'll say, uh, pull back the the curtain or or pull back the layers of his heart and reveal to us his greatest treasure, his highest joy, his deepest hope, and really his life. Uh, I believe that today is going to be encouraging, uh, but also just as a warning, it's also going to be uh, deeply challenging. And what we're going to find is Paul's words here in Philippians 1, 12 through 26 are really going to get us to ask ourselves, you're going to ask yourself this morning, in the depths of my heart, in the depths of who I am, uh, what is the central aim of my life? Uh, What's the aim of my life? Uh, What am I really after? What am I truly living for? Uh, What do I value the most? And then from there, I believe Paul's going to uh, help us know, uh, is the thing that I value the most, whatever that may be, worth it? Is the thing that you value the most right now in your life, is it worth it? But before we, we look at these words, dig into these words, uh, let, me, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we confess. We confess today that we, we need your help. Uh, we, do not, we do not have the capacity to see the truth, and we don't have the capacity to listen and comprehend the truth without you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal truth to us today. Uh, reveal to us what matters most Show us, please, show us Jesus today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So what we're going to do this morning uh, is just work through this text line by line as we normally do. And then uh, I'm going to land the plane today uh, with some reflection, okay? Uh, So let's start with verse 12. Um, We have a lot to cover, but we're going to move through it, I think, pretty quickly. Starting in verse 12, Paul says this again. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Uh, I hope this is really obvious, but anytime you read the Bible, it's just a good tip for you. Anytime you read the Bible and the author says, I want you to know, um, that's typically a good time to pause and ask Um, what do they want me to know? Um, And here Paul tells us, I want you to know that what has happened to me. And so what happened to Paul? What happened to Paul? Well, I already mentioned that Paul is likely in a Roman prison here, but how did he get there? That's important. How did he get there? 
Well, um, in week one, we, we studied Acts chapter 16. That's when Paul plants this church in Philippi. But after Acts 16, a lot happens to Paul. Uh, we know that he was nearly killed by a mob in Jerusalem. Uh, he was unjustly put into prison. But through, uh, he was put through some like absurd, uh, unfair trials. And then after that, we know that a group of around 40 Jewish men uh, came up with this plot to kill Paul. They actually came together and they made a vow with one another to not eat anything, to, to fast until Paul was dead. Right? That's how much they hated Paul. Right? You can read all about that in Acts 21 through 23. Well, because of that, Paul needs to escape, right? He's got to get out of there. They they want him dead, and he barely does. He escapes. He is led by Roman escort uh, to the town of Caesarea. He's put in prison there. No big deal. He's put in prison there for two years. It's kind of like an afterthought in the scriptures. Two years in prison, right? Some of you think that, you know, COVID's been long for a year and a half. He's in no big deal, just two years of his life in prison, And then eventually, he's able to make an appeal to Caesar, though. He wants to be heard by Caesar. And so that means that they say yes. So he and a bunch of crew uh, get in a boat, and they start heading to Rome for Paul to go see Caesar. Well, more trials come. Uh, They're on the boat. A massive storm comes, and that leads to a tragic shipwreck. You can read about that in Acts 27. Well, uh, the crew, they're in the water. They end up floating their way to the island of Malta because of the wreck. And it's there, you know, they're all wet. I don't know what exactly happens. They're all wet and Paul's building a fire. And then for whatever reason, a poisonous viper comes and bites Paul. Okay. He's bit by a poisonous snake. But he recovers, right? He survives, uh, flings it off of him. And then finally, they're able to leave. They get the means to leave, and they make it to Rome, finally. And there, uh, Paul is placed on house arrest. Okay? He's imprisoned again. And he's chained uh, to a Roman guard for at least, at least two more years as he's waiting to be heard by Caesar. And it's during that imprisonment, that house arrest, being chained, that Paul writes this letter Uh, to the Philippians. He is clearly uncertain about his future. But now he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, we talked about this in depth last week, but again, we know the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that Jesus offers forgiveness of sin based not on our righteousness, nothing we've done, but based on his righteousness. That's the gospel. And so Paul here says, all that I've gone through, everything that I've been through, the near deaths, the slander, the years in prison, the shipwreck, the viper, it's been worth it. It's all been worth it. Why? Why? He says, because God has used it. God has used it to advance this good news. He's, he's used my circumstances uh, to, to advance the victory message about Jesus. And, and how did God use it? What happened? Well, he tells us in verse 13, he says this, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So get this. Paul says that God has used my situation and this imprisonment to spread the gospel to the whole imperial guard. Uh, Which, by the way, um, these are the guards that directly reported to Caesar himself. This is a really big deal. And in addition to that, he says, he just throws in there, and to all the rest. And we don't know who that is, or we have no idea, but apparently a bunch of other uh, people heard the gospel. And then he continues, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so again, just to kind of take us into this, Paul says, uh, the good news, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one uh, who would come to redeem and save the lost, the long-awaited promised one. The message of Christ has spread. Right? It's amazing. But not only that, not only that, not only do all these guards and other people um, in Rome now know the gospel, right? They know why Paul is in chains, why he's in prison. But also, in addition to that, the church, the church knows what he has done. And as a result, they have been strengthened, encouraged, uh, they've been emboldened, and now they have boldness, courage to share the gospel with their lives as well. And then he provides a bit more explanation of that. He says this, he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, just so we're all on the same page uh, today, to preach, to preach means uh, to do the work of a herald. Okay? It's heralding, that's what it means. It's, it's presenting a message with clarity, with accuracy, and with faithfulness that comes from a higher authority. And so, for example, um, I'll use myself as an example for you. My authority, my authority is God himself. That's my authority. I am standing here before you all this morning as his messenger. And hopefully, for your sake and mine, hopefully with clarity, with accuracy, and with faithfulness, I am heralding God's truth, heralding his message. That's what Christian preaching is. And so in doing that, these people are preaching the gospel, heralding the gospel, and in doing that, Paul says here that there are a spectrum, a variety of motives in preaching. He says some have good motives, right? They preach out of love and care, sincere hearts. But there are others who preach with false motives. And we're not told much about that. Not, we don't know much more about that. We don't know who was doing this, who was preaching out of false motives. We don't know exactly what they were preaching, how they were doing this. But what that tells us is that the details of that are not really important here. The important thing is how Paul responds to this how he responds to these different motives. And so look at that. He says this. He says, what then? What then? And if I was Paul, I'd say this. What then? Well, when I get out of this prison, I'm going to go get those guys. Right? They're spreading falsehoods about me. I've been in prison for like five years, whatever it's been, five years of the last like seven. It's just, right? I'm going to go get those guys. They're, they're like preaching false gospel about Jesus. I'm going to go get them. It's you know, insincere hearts, but Paul doesn't do that. So thank goodness I'm not Paul. He says, what then? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he emphasizes it. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. So, so Paul is peeling back, again, he's peeling back the layers here, We aren't quite at the core of his heart yet, but what we are starting to see here in this text is that Paul is is able to, he is, he's looking past the difficulties, he's looking past his trials, he's looking even past the soldier that is chained right next to him. There's a guy sitting next to him and chained to him, looking past that, and it says, here's what matters. None of that matters. Here's what matters. That Jesus is known and that the gospel advances. That's it. Paul says, I am rejoicing, full of hope, full of joy, because of Jesus and the gospel. And so the question is, the question really is, what is it? What is it about the gospel? What is it about Jesus that makes all of the suffering, his trials, his trouble, his imprisonment, what makes all of that worth it? 
What is it? What is it about the gospel in Jesus that makes Paul say, nothing else matters, only that Christ is proclaimed? Why can Paul say in this situation, I will rejoice? Well, he explains. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. We'll pause here. Not to to go too deep into this, but I think there's a, a good question that comes out of this text, and that is, what kind of deliverance is Paul talking about here? Um, Is this deliverance from jail? Or is this deliverance as in um, ultimate deliverance, his salvation? Because the word here, deliverance, it's the word uh, soteria, soteria. And it really could mean both. Uh, But in my mind, uh, in my mind, in my study, I think it's pretty clear um, this is about salvation. This is about ultimate deliverance into God's presence It's about deliverance that is guaranteed, regardless of the result to his appeal, uh, of the result of his appeal to Caesar. But, okay, but, that being said, um, it could, I want to admit, you know, I want to, you know, always tell you the truth, it could mean being rescued from prison. It could. And it could mean both. He could be talking about both deliverances. Either way, though, the point is the same. The point is, Paul is declaring his trust in God's sovereign plan here. That yes, he had gone through a lot. Right? Some of you, you think you had a difficult weekend. Right? Paul had gone through a lot. But ultimately, he trusted and believed that God would turn out his situation for good. And so he's saying, through your prayers, church, and the help of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, He says, I will be strengthened and empowered to endure, to make it through. And ultimately, he says, I will be, I know I will be delivered. Maybe, maybe from these chains, these physical chains and this imprisonment that I'm in. But definitely, definitely, absolutely, I will be delivered in my salvation. I will be delivered into the presence of God himself. Well, then verse 20, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. He's not talking about before people, not ashamed before people. He's talking about before God. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed before God, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So why is it Paul's eager expectation and hope that he will not be ashamed? It's really simple. Because Jesus is his hope. Because Jesus is hope. That's the flow of the argument here that that, that Paul has started with. That's what Paul has been telling this church from the very beginning of this letter. Listen, we, we have to understand this. It's hard for us sometimes. We're reading this in 2021. We've got to go back into the mind of Paul. We have to understand everything he's been through, his circumstance. And we have to come to a place, we, we have to know, he doesn't know. Paul does not know how things are going to turn out with Caesar. He's about to meet the most powerful man in the world. That's his expectation. I'm going to be before him. I don't know how it's going to turn out with Caesar. But, but he's saying, I do know, I do know how things are going to turn out with Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen with Caesar, but I do know what's going to happen with Christ. And so that's why Paul is rejoicing. He's full of joy because he knows that he will be given strength by their prayers. That he will ultimately be saved And that in that, Jesus will be honored in his life no matter what happens next, either life or death. And so Paul here gives us insight, again, to what what motivates him, what has kept him going through all all these difficulties, all this hardship and trials. And all this is, is a necessary setup, actually. It's a necessary setup for us to apply 
this truth or these truths to our own lives. Paul lives to honor Christ, whether by death or life. Why? Why? Why is he okay with suffering? Why is Paul okay with with persecution, with slander, with snake bites, with storms, with prison, provided that Jesus is honored and the gospel advances? Contingent upon that. Why? And Paul's answer to this question is what I believe to be the heart of Paul. Heart of Paul. But not only that, it's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. The very heart of Christianity itself. Everything radiates and spills out from this truth that Paul says. Next, verse 21. He says this. For to, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. A little bit later in chapter 3. We'll study this in a, in a month or so. A couple months, I guess it is. In chapter 3, we'll see something a bit similar. Paul will say, he'll say this, he'll say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ. This is how Paul lived how he spoke. In Colossians 3, I think he really puts it more simply. He he sums up this idea. He says this in chapter 3 of Colossians. He says, Christ, who is our life. Simple. So what Paul is telling us here is that the supreme worth of Jesus, the supreme value worth of Jesus is the controlling factor for how he understood reality and his very reason for existence. That in the depths of his being, he saw Jesus as incomparably beautiful and immeasurably valuable. He saw Jesus as greater gain than all this life has to offer. Better than anything you could possibly take hold of, attain, On this earth. And so now Paul is summing up the entirety of his existence in the person, work, and value of Jesus. His joy, his trust, his hope is in Jesus. He preaches Christ, he lives for Christ, he obeys Christ, trusts Christ, he's devoted to Christ. For Paul, he says, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And then he expands on that thought a little more deeply. He says this, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, more necessary for you. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is is great. Uh, I I love Paul. What he's essentially saying here is this. Um, hard pressed between the two, like, uh, like it's, om- it's almost impossible for me to decide here. Like he's, he's almost saying, there's too much gain for me to choose here. And therefore, I'm torn. I'm torn between all the gain that's at my disposal. That on the one hand, on the one side, to live, certainly to live is gain. Because what that means is fruitful labor. It means helping church. It means helping your growth and joy in the faith. It means seeing you again. It means doing kingdom work together, right? And that's gain for Paul. 
And on the other hand, the other side, he says, to die is gain. Because regardless of the situation or the circumstance, it doesn't matter what happens to me, the gospel will still advance as it always has been. It doesn't matter what's happened to me, the kingdom will grow. It will advance. But also, he says, to die is better gain, far better gain, actually, if I die, because it means that I'll be alive with Jesus. It means that I'll get to be in his intimate presence forever. And so bottom line here, Paul is saying, if I live, great. I get to help advance the gospel as I've been doing and will continue to do. But if I die, even greater, because the gospel will still advance, the kingdom's still going to grow, and in that, I'll be able to sit back and be with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. All right, well, well, we've kind of worked our way through this text. I told you it was going to be fairly quick, for me at least. That's pretty quick, working through the text. But now I want to go back, actually, and dig a bit deeper into verse 20, 21, because this is so important, right? There's a reason that it's written on the banner behind me, okay? That's not an accident. That's really important. So, so what does it mean? What does it mean to say to live is Christ, to die is gain? Let's go deeper into this. We're going to sit here for just a bit. What Paul is describing here is actually the genuine essence of worship. Worship comes from an old English word. It's an old English word. Uh, it's the word worthship. Okay, worthship. That's hard to say through a mask. Hopefully, you're getting the pronunciation. Okay, worthship. And that's because it describes, the word describes what we give worth to in our life. The thing that we value, the thing that we treasure, the thing that we live for, the thing that we give worth to is worship. And so true gain, true gain, Paul is saying here, is seeing Jesus as our greatest treasure our deepest security, our highest joy, and our most profound satisfaction. Now listen, we know that our hearts, our hearts are rebelling against those realities. But that's what Jesus is after in your life. He wants to be all those things and so much more for you. Right now, if, you, if we can track back just for like 15 seconds... Take your mind back to the Garden of Eden, the very beginning, the temptation there. What was the main lie? Right? Satan shows up, and what was the main lie? You could boil it down simple. He says, God is not good. God is not good. You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to do what he says. He's keeping things from you. He's hiding things from you. There's much more for you in your life. There's much more for you to gain. You don't need him. There's more. You can have him and so much more. God is not good. And so Paul, Paul is now, he's here. He's trying to correct that, reverse that saying. That that lie. He's saying true gain is counting, actually, is counting everything as loss in this life when compared to the value of, of gaining Jesus or being with Jesus. That's enough. So so to live is to show Jesus' supremacy, to cherish him, to prize him, to be satisfied with him and with him alone. It's stacking up everything that we might have or find in this life and finding Jesus even greater still. It's finding him above all. It's, it's once again finding him to be good, to reversing that lie that God is not good. It's saying, no, you are good, God. And so try this. This is a good exercise for you this morning. Not like physical exercise, mental exercise, maybe spiritual exercise, emotional exercise, unless you want to get up and run around just a little bit. But still listen, okay? Try this. Take the word Christ out of that verse. Take the word Christ out of that sentence. For me to live, and do this, for me to live is blank. 
How would you fill that in? For me to live is, maybe it's money. To live is money. But if to live is money, then to die is what? It's not gain. Because when you die, you lose all your money, right? So if to live is money, then death is loss, not gain. Or if to live is my career, career, then again, to die is loss because I I don't know, I don't think I'm going to hand the microphone over to Jesus when I'm in the kingdom. I don't think I need to preach anymore. Maybe he'll let me now and then. I don't know. But I don't have nothing to say before him. Let him do the preaching and teachings. Far better than me. Or maybe to, to live is the approval of others. That's what it is for you. To live is to get approval of others. Maybe it's to live is pleasure. To live is marriage. To live is kids. Maybe it's to live is finding security. To live is comfort. To live is power, authority. Listen, if it's any of those things, then again, dying is loss for you. It's loss. Because you will lose all of those things at death. We could go on and on and on here. If living is to be healthy, right, some of us right now, especially in this COVID season, and again, I'm not saying don't be wise, but living right now is just to be healthy. Every morning you wake up and you sniffle, I have COVID, right? You're going to bed and there's a cough and then someone, your friend looks at you, do you have COVID? Should you get tested? Right? We're consumed by it. To live is to be healthy. Well, I have news for you. Then dying is clearly loss. We're all going to die at least once. <laughs> if to live is preaching a good sermon, Pastor James, speaking to me right now, it's loss. It's loss in comparison to the surpassing worth, riches, and beauty of the living God. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, really, he's saying that all the treasures of this life come with an expiration date, don't they? When you die, when we die, we lose it all. Relationships, money, marriage, kids, clothes, power, comfort, health, gone. Yes, listen, don't misunderstand me. Yes, All those things are are God-given gifts for us to enjoy. Praise the Lord. But they are not, they are not meant to be on that line for what we live for. So I ask you again, what is on that line for you? What do you, what do you fill in the blank with? To live is what? For you. You know, I, I think a common trap, I was thinking about this. I'll give you just two common traps I see, even within the church, even in my own life. I think a common trap for us is to believe, to believe that to live, to live is to arrive. You could put that up on there. To live is to arrive. However, we might define arrival. Let me explain. Don't we tend to put our hope in arrival? Like, we'll say things like this. Well, it's really difficult now. It's really tough now. But I'll be satisfied when blank happens. I'll be fulfilled. I'll be okay when that happens. If that happens. Everything will be right with me once I get into that relationship or have that relationship. When I get that job when I get that house, when I move out of my parents' house, right? Everything's going to be okay if I could just make a little bit more money, if I can just get healthy. Life will be so fulfilling when, once I retire. Only when I get this, once that happens, if this changes. But listen, What if the point, what if the point of Jesus orchestrating your life as it currently is, bringing you here to this point, is not to get you out of the season that you're in or to bring you to a place of arrival, 
But the point is for him to become your greatest gain. To become why you live. What if that's the point? What if the arrival that Jesus has in mind for you is arriving at the understanding that to live is Christ and to die is gain and nothing else? Look, no one, no one likes suffering. Disappointment. No one likes heartache. No one likes hardship. Which is why we try to get away from those things as quickly as we can, right? But in my experience, as hard as those things are, there is a gift. There is a gift in the valley seasons of life. Because they often reveal where our hope is found and what we're living for. In that, I think COVID actually has been a blessing. It's been a great blessing to me personally. It has revealed my heart in some really bad ways. And some really good ways too, but in a lot of bad ways. It's revealed to me where my hope is found. It's revealed to me what I'm living for. I had all these plans, you know. Some of you know February Last year, 2020, you know, we merged these two churches together. A lot of momentum, a lot of excitement. Everyone's ready, forming these teams, right? And then COVID, boom. Okay, well, we've got to do this for a couple weeks, and it's gone on. And then again, this last summer, now we're coming out of things again. And there's hope, there's excitement. We're coming out, and then level four. For me, that just sent me into a tailspin in July. Depressed hopeless, and I realized, oh, the church is actually what I'm living for. Actually, my hope is found in being a good leader, a good preacher. Well, then there's another trap. that There's a lot of them, but another trap I just want to briefly mention. I think we do this more often than we, than we even realize, and that is going to Jesus Going to Jesus with expectation of what he can do for us, not merely for going to him for who he is. In other words, we can do this, right? Even as followers of Jesus, you've got you to search your heart about this. Something else actually is your greater gain or is your greatest gain. But we just use Jesus to get that thing. It's not Jesus. So, for example, maybe we're longing for happiness. And so we go to Jesus for the primary purpose to get happy. We're longing for satisfaction in life, and so we're looking to Jesus or using him for that. Maybe it's material gain. Like, I'm going to go to him because I feel like he will give me the blessing that I desire and want. Now, look, will he sometimes do those things? Sometimes you will have material gain if you follow Jesus. Living by the right way, the right principles, sure, it happens, right? You will find satisfaction. You will find joy. You will find happiness in Christ. Absolutely. But the question is, the question is, in that scenario, again, what is your chief treasure? What's your ultimate gain? Is the trajectory of your life, the hope of your life, is it getting comfortable? Or is it Jesus? Is it being happy or is it Jesus? Is it fulfillment in your life or is it Jesus? So we have to to grasp this, that genuine affections for Jesus, being with Jesus is an end in itself. Do you see that? Do you know that today? Do you believe that today? Jesus is not, he is not a means to another end. Right? You certainly get a lot when you have Jesus and when you follow Jesus. But the primary chief end is Christ is all. He's all. Listen, God did not create us. He did not create you to be satisfied in anything less than himself. So if you put anything else in that blank today, if you, in, if you fill in that blank with anything other than Christ, the end word for you is always going to be loss. Only he makes life and death 
gain. That's what Paul's getting at here. Real life is knowing, loving, serving, and enjoying Jesus in all things. Christ is all. He is everything. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why? Why? Why is Christ gain? Why should I ascribe to him this, this measure, this, this absolute measure of cherishing, treasuring, and finding my all-satisfying hope and life in him? Why is Christ gain? Let me tell you. Christ is gain because there's no one like him. He is fully God, fully man, king of kings, Lord of lords. He's the maker of all things. Christ is gain because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father, God, except through him. Christ is gain because he is God come in the flesh to seek and save the lost, and to forgive and love and serve those who are far off from him. Christ is gain because his righteousness covers us, his blood forgives us and saves us, and his spirit indwells us. Christ is gain because even though, even though we continually fall short, he will never give up on us. Christ is gain because to this day he is working all things according to his sovereign and perfect purposes in our lives individually and in our world collectively. Christ is gain because his grace never expires. His power never fails. His love never ends. And listen, he will never leave us or forsake us. Christ is gain because his dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. Christ is gain because his promises are faithful. They always remain true. And he is coming back to make all things new. Amen? John Stott, John Stott, who's a pastor in London a generation ago, uh, he said this about Jesus. He said this. It's beautiful. He says, The riches of Christ are unsearchable like the earth. They are too vast to explore like the sea. Too deep to fathom. They are untraceable, inexhaustible, inscrutable, and incalculable. What is certain about the wealth Christ has and gives is that we shall never come to an end of it. There is no one Nothing like Jesus. And so without him, without Jesus, no matter how much we have, how much we attain, we actually have nothing. But with him, with Christ, we can truly say that we have everything. So is it any wonder, is it any wonder why Paul says to live as Christ And to die is gain. Paul says, I've suffered, but Christ. I've been mistreated, but Christ. My future here on earth and this imprisonment is uncertain, but Christ. I might die even, but Christ. So listen, maybe you're facing deep pain today. Maybe you have some some sincere heartache, anguish uncertainty, sadness. Maybe you're confused. You feel lost. Maybe you're stuck in sin, broken. Maybe you feel defeated today. You need to hear this. Christ is all. He is gain. Let me close, let me close with this today. How, how do we get to this place? How do we get here? How do we share Paul's heart? How do we get to the place where we can genuinely believe and live out this truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain? 
I'll give you three principles. They're not going to be on the screen, but you can write them down. Three, three sort of action items, three practical steps of how we can genuinely believe and get to the place of saying that to live is Christ and to die is gain. First of all, first of all, number one, pursue knowing Jesus. It's simple. It's simple. You got to pursue knowing Jesus. It's simple, but listen, you won't see Christ as gain in your life if you don't actually know him. I hope that's obvious. But some of us, we, we don't see Christ as all in all because we just really don't know him. So, so learn as much as you can about him. Learn about his character, his words, his works, his claims, his power, his attributes, his promises, his ways. Dive into what he has achieved for us on the cross. Consider what he has accomplished through his resurrection and his ascension. Right? I'm, I'm encouraging you to go learn. Listen to solid preaching. Please listen to solid preaching. Hopefully some of that is done here. I hope. Read books from other solid pastors and theologians. If you don't know any, ask me. I'll point you to some. And of course, continually find yourself coming back to the word of God. Reflect on the truths of the gospel. And then as you do that, as you learn about God, ask yourself, is for me to live Christ? Is for me to live Christ? Pursue knowing him. Second, how do we share Paul's heart here? How do we see Christ as all? To see Christ as gain? Number, number two, pursue becoming like him. Pursue knowing him. Number two, pursue becoming like him. Listen, I say this a lot. I say it often because I think it's true. It's not enough to just know Jesus. It's not enough to just know the gospel, to know the word. You also need to live the gospel. You need to live out the word. So don't be satisfied. Don't be satisfied with just knowing about Jesus. Pursue being like him as well. Apply your knowledge of him to your everyday life. Obey him. Learn to listen to him. Follow him. Seek to love others like Jesus. Seek to serve others like Jesus. Attempt to just just try to be Christ-like among the people that he has placed around you. And listen, listen, this means making Jesus known as well. If you are gripped by the reality that Jesus is everything, if he's everything, if it resonates with your soul that to live is Christ and to die is gain, you will be, or I should say maybe, you should be moved to share that reality with others, to share the gospel with others. If he is all in all, if he's everything, if there's no satisfaction, if there's no life found apart from him, then as you're in relationship with other people and they're seeking other things for those things, how dare we not tell them? How dare we not tell them? How much, how much would we have to, I'll use a strong word, how much would we have to hate others around us, family members, coworkers, friends, to not share the answer to life? To hoard it from ourselves? to come to a place like this, listen, nod our heads, agree that Christ is life. He's all in all. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I know that my security is sure. And then we leave and don't tell anyone about it. How much do we have to hate the world to keep this for ourselves? Pursue knowing him. Pursue becoming like him. And then finally, pursue your greatest joy in him. Pursue your greatest joy in him. I mean to say, find your greatest joy in Jesus. Look, the reason I, I, I say this specifically is because I don't believe that that happens on accident. There might be seasons in your life where the joy of the Lord just bubbles up within you, right? You've been there. You've, you've, you've been in that 
uh, you, you listen to that sermon or you've been in that worship service or you've been in the word, word and this is truth about who God is, the reality of the gospel just hits you and there's this just inexplainable peace and joy that swells up within your heart, right? That happens on occasion. But at least in my own life, people around me, my own experience, finding your greatest joy in Jesus is something we must continually pursue. You have to pursue that. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you today to regularly, regularly examine your heart. You need to search your heart. Take time. Make it a priority to examine your heart and genuinely, genuinely ask yourself, what am I living for? What's the aim of my life? What am I really going after? When's the last time you sat by yourself before God and genuinely asked, what do I value the most? And then ask yourself a follow-up question once you come up with the answer. Is what I'm living for worth it? If, if that thing that you value the most is not Jesus Sit there and and decide. Decide right away. Ask yourself, okay, is Jesus greater? Is Is he greater? And I promise you, I promise you, as you have that conversation with yourself, maybe you even bring other people into that conversation with you. I encourage you to do that. When you do that and you reflect on him, Once again, maybe the first time, you reflect on who he is, all that he's done, all that he promises to do. You will see him. You'll see him for the first time, or maybe you'll see him once again as the greatest gain. My my hope, my hope is that as a church, as a church, that we would live and love in such a way that demonstrates to one another and to our city, that Jesus is our greatest gain. That he is our ultimate treasure. That he is our highest delight. So let's believe together. Let's believe together that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then let's live our lives as if that is actually true. Amen? Let me pray for you.